Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This week, we're very happy to welcome back to the show Ben Wong. Ben has been on the show before talking about photography, and Ben doesn't really talk about gear. He talks about the concept of photography. Ben has a new book out called The Practicing Photographer, and Ben, it's nice to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. You know, I was looking through your book this morning, and I came up to one chapter, What Does Comfort Zone Really Mean?, And you say, in any creative pursuit, you often hear people extolling the virtues of getting out of your comfort zone. What does that mean if you're a photographer? Should you carry a heavier camera? Take up war photography? (laughs) I appreciate the the slight bit of sarcasm there. But it's actually interesting because we get so much into a rut of doing the same thing over and over that sometimes we have to change. And I think there are too many photographers that they just go out and buy a new lens instead of trying something different. I'm certainly guilty of that. It, you you really want there to be a gear-based solution because it's a great ra- rationalization to buy a new piece of gear. But of course, then you're in the same rut with a different piece of gear. So it, it doesn't work. I The rut thing is a really, I'm glad you brought that up first, because I think that's probably the most common thing that we all pound our heads against is just that feeling of, you're out, you lift the camera to your eye, you frame the shot, and you think, nah, I've taken this before, uh, or I've seen this before, or this is the, I always compose this scene in the same way. And I think that that happens because there was a point where you took that shot and you liked it. And so you're training yourself that, that when I shoot this way, I get good results. And that means when I go home, I don't, I actually feel like I'm a photographer. When I go home and look at my stuff, I go, oh, I'm good at this. And I think so. I think the rut is actually a a fear based thing. We're so afraid of getting home and feeling like we failed, or even when we're out feeling like we're not doing well, that we stick inside this zone of comfort where we do what we've done before if it was something we did before and felt like it was successful. And so we're just stuck doing the same thing over and over because we believe this is going to make me feel better later. It's going to make me feel successful later. And it will for a while until you do it enough that you start to feel like you're in a rut. So it's ultimately a self-defeating place that you're in. But I find that if I, I, I dabble with different types of photography, and I find that when I do something a lot and I feel that I've done some good work, I'm not that interested in repeating the same thing again. It, it's not a rut. It's that I feel like I've gone as far as I can with it. A couple summers ago, my partner became an avid gardener. We have a large garden behind the house. And I did a lot of photography of flowers. I would put them on my desk in my home office, a window to the left. I'd put a black cloth background and macro uh, lens and really close up with natural light, um, long exposures with a a very small aperture to get depth of field. And I did this for a couple months, made about 100 really nice photos. But after a while, I thought, well, next summer, do I want to take any more? And I haven't done that again. But I don't feel like it's a rut. I feel like I explored something and I got to the end of where I could go. And it's time to do something else. That's, uh, I think that for me, where the rut comes up is at a at a lower level than that, which is... Uh, you know, just like going out and wandering around with a camera, I'll just find that, oh, here's a thing. I'll compose it this way. I'm going to I'm going to build forms in this way. I'm going to use light and shadow this way. Those are the kinds of decisions that I feel like I make the same over and over and over. 
particularly with certain geometric situations and things like that. If I find a good, solid vertical line, I'll do this kind of thing around it rather than looking for something new because I know that thing works to my satisfaction. But isn't that part of a personal style, though? That a certain type of photographer is going to take a certain type of photo and over time, that repetition becomes part of their style. I don't think you should, and I say this in the book, I don't think you should stop doing that thing. But if you're finding that you feel that that's triggering this rut thing, that feeling of, oh, I always shoot this way, definitely keep doing it. Because as you say, you are you are working towards something. But what you have to force yourself to do is say, all right, I'm going to allow myself to take this shot, but I have to find three others. I have to, I have to work this into a different kind of composition to try to force myself somewhere else. Odds are I'm going to get home and still only like that one, but <laughs> so often you might find something new. And now you've expanded your vocabulary. Now you've expanded your style. Now you've got something new you can work on. And most importantly, you're maybe breaking up that feeling that you always do the same thing in the same way. I also wonder if that's a situation where you go out and you shoot the thing because you know how to shoot the thing at that angle. And do you sometimes find that you are uh, thinking about, oh, I'm in a rut and I need to th to do something else in the moment or afterwards? Because sometimes I'll, I'll go out and I'll shoot and say, hey, like that was pretty okay. And I'll go back and look at my shots and be like, oh, no, th these are all the same because I, I wasn't present at the moment to think that I need to go find three other angles because I, I thought I was having a good time or I didn't have much time to shoot or what have you. That's very interesting. I think that, uh, I mean, obviously at that, my first response would be, well, then you're not, you're not deep into a rut that's, that's getting in your way at this point. It's not mm. tripping up while you're shooting. Um, on the other hand, if you're getting home and finding yourself disappointed with your, with your stuff, it's, it's going to have to be a conscious decision on your part while you're at, while you're out to think, all right, am I, am I doing the same thing over and over? Do I need to watch out for that? Last time I got home, I, I felt frustrated that I hadn't done this. And this right. is one of the points of the book is that practicing something, anything, but in this case, photography is something you have to practice. You have to learn how, what you need at this particular time to get better. And you have to figure out a way to practice that. And Jeff, in your case, I think it might be that you need to start thinking more about uh, is am I am I building the same images over and over? Now, I also don't mm -hmm. want to I don't want people to come away thinking, oh, my gosh, if I ever shoot, shoot the same composition twice, I'm screwing up. That's not it at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and Kirk, back to your point, the idea of creating a style, um, the I, I think of it in terms of vocabulary, this type of composition that I go and I shoot over and over, that is a piece of my personal photographic vocabulary. And I want as many of those as I can have. And I say in the book, you should go out and try to get in a rut. You want to try and get in a whole bunch of ruts. Because <laughs> every one of those things that you're feeling as a rut is actually a piece of your, of your vocabulary. So if we think about you go out and something catches your eye, from that moment forward, you, you've had an impulse. Now you're trying to find through the use of the vocabulary that you have, a way of building that impulse you had into a photo. And the more vocabulary chunks that you have, the better off you are. I think the same feeling of ruts, I mean, a, a musician can have this. They sit around and they noodle, and maybe a guitar player says, man, I'm just playing the same thing over and over and over. I'm getting so tired of it. But they need to do that. I recently was involved in the production of, a, of an interview with Gary Bartz, who was a saxophone player, and he was in one of John Coltrane's bands, and he was talking about one time uh, he ran into 
Coltrane's wife on the streets of New York, and she had a look about her, and he said, Naima, what's wrong? And she said, oh, nothing. I'm just worried about John. He's been playing the same two notes for three days. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Gary Bartz thought, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's what you have to do. And as photographers, we have the same thing. You've got to shoot those things over and over and over. But the pitfall is you're going to feel like you're in a rut. So you've got to try to force yourself to now go find another piece of vocabulary to work. Don't lose the first one. Keep building them up into, Kurt, as you said, a, a style. But isn't one of the problems having expectations that every time you go out and take pictures, you have to come up with something that's wonderful? It doesn't always work like that. It doesn't always work like that. And that's why uh, one of the first things I say in the book is your goal as a photographer should never be to take great pictures. Your goal should just be to practice. Uh, if you change, the, if you move the goalposts to practicing rather than great photography, then you have an easier goal and are potentially something that you can enjoy more. <laughs> you, you talk about um, developing vocabulary. And before the show, we were talking about um, looking into the past, looking at the work of other photographers. You, you have a chapter in the book called Study the Past, where you're talking about this. You say looking at other photos is a form of eye training. And I mentioned that I'm a big fan of William Eggleston's photography. I've mentioned it on the show. I can spend a day looking through a few William Eggleston books and then go out with my camera and see the world like William Eggleston photos. And I find that really interesting. There is this sort of repetition, kind of like flashcards or something, that the more you see certain styles of composition, it kind of unlocks something in your brain that can spot the same thing. And that, for me, is the most wonderful reason to look at books and, and photos of great photographers. I agree. And I, I think maybe people don't understand, you know, if it's cold and rainy and you don't want to go out or whatnot, you can sit and look at a book of photos and that counts as photography. That counts as practicing. It's maybe more effective than on a certain day than what you can do out in the field with your camera. The brain is a correlation engine. That's all it does is try to find patterns between different things. And so learning particularly composition, uh, learning visual things, you can train up those correlations just by looking at photos. And I, you're right. It's great. You can you can study a particular photographer and go out and you're seeing the world the way they see them, which not only changes your style, it's a great way of understanding another photographer. And, and maybe that leads you to go, wow, I never realized before that they were facing this problem and look at the ways they solved it. That's really cool. And some maybe maybe you then forget it. But if you do that kind of thing enough, some of it's going to stick. And it's not just looking at photography. Art is a wonderful example of different types of composition. Um, at the end of the podcast, we give our snapshots, so things that we found interesting. And one of the ones that I mentioned some time ago was a very large book of woodcuts by the Japanese uh, painter Hiroshika. And they are composed like photographs. They are in a 3-2 aspect ratio. The composition is really what we do in photography, except he's controlling everything. Uh, I, I find that Anything like that gives you, and looking at anything visual, any visual art can be applied to photography, I think. I agree. And, and as far as practice and, and discipline, I think you can look at any other art form. I teach every summer in a, in a multidisciplinary arts program, and it's fascinating to look at the writers and the musicians and the dancers and whatnot and see that they're actually trying to solve a lot of the same problems I am. But because their discipline is so different, they have to come at it from a different direction. And looking at some of their solutions sometimes can inform can inform my my work as a photographer. But what about the EXIF data? 
And you mentioned this at one point in the book. Yes. Is it F 1.8 or F 2.4? And was it 125th of a second or a 60th of a second? I'm in a couple photo groups on Facebook. I just don't understand why should anyone care about this? You know, the XF data from dancers is just the best to peruse. That's that's hard to miss. But, but seriously, here's here's the problem. There are two types of things that are being taught in photography. There's the craft and there is the art. The craft is the easy stuff. All the photo magazines can have articles about, hey, use this aperture, you get more depth of field, less depth of field. Use this shutter speed, you get blur or no blur. And the art is the thing that they can't teach in the magazines, so most people aren't ever exposed to it. Well, actually, I think that really ties into the idea of practice because teaching those technical things is, A, easier to do in a magazine article or something like that. And in many cases, someone will go out and see some sort of immediate effect from it. Oh, if I shoot in a wider aperture, uh, I get that nice soft look behind the my subject. Okay, well, I've done something and I feel like I've done better. But have they actually done better? Or is that just like, you've taken a small step that feels like a big step. Then how do you know if you're taking bigger steps after that? Well, I would argue that learning how to use your tool is very important. And and that's yeah. how you learn how to use your tool. But beyond that, you have to learn how to use the tool and then forget it and then think differently. All of these questions you're arising, you're, you're arriving at, again, point to the idea that Practicing is not something that you can just say, well, I'm off to practice now. You got to figure it out. You've got to figure out, am I right now, am I frustrated because of a craft problem or an art problem? Am I frustrated because I don't know the tool well enough? Or am I frustrated because all I know is how to use the tool? You have to be thinking about these things and building a plan to address the issues that that you feel like you're having at the time. And the problem is you've got to first be able to address those issues, which means you first have to have an aesthetic for photography, <laughs> which means yeah. you need to be looking at photo books. Exactly. I was going to say, if you are looking just at photography magazines and they're teaching the craft, then that's all you're going to do. I mean, look how popular those crunchy HDR photos were for a while because people would see them in magazines. They had no desire to make art. And, and I totally respect people who look at photography as a craft and not as art, as a hobby, I would say. There's nothing wrong with that. But they're reproducing what they're seeing in the magazines rather than looking at books and reproducing what they're seeing in books, or at least attempting to do so. Yeah, it, it's a real problem. I think there's a point that, so all photographers go through the same stages of learning. And what I think is funny is you can go back to the the very early photographers and see them going through these same stages. I saw I don't remember the other day I noticed or a couple months ago, I noticed on my shelf, I had a, I don't know, a Stieglitz book or something that I don't remember buying. And I thought, wow, this is great. And I opened it up and I was looking at it and I thought, wow, this, this all looks like student work. Uh, <laughs> and I just come out of teaching a bunch of teenagers. I said, this really, you know, I, our teenagers were doing as well as this. And then I realized, oh, right. He had to go through the same stages that all photographers. There was a moment where his eye opened up to Oh, line, and then, oh, texture, and oh, shadow, and he was playing with all these things. We all have to go through that. They got to do it first when no one else had seen it, and so they got to sell those images, and we can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to go through those stages. And I think another thing that happens early on, and, and lasts for your whole life, you're fighting it all the time, is did I recognize this image or this scene as a potential photo because it struck me, or did I recognize that it looks 
like a photo as I have come to understand it from all the other work that I've seen. And I think this is a, a big reason that you practice is to get through to, well, what is my vision? I recognize this scene because it strikes a chord in me because I find it interesting because of whatever reason, rather than I recognize the scene because I understand that if I do this, this, and this, I end up with a good photo, a good photo, because I've seen that photo a lot before. And I'm sure that you've seen when you're teaching in a photo workshop, you'll have students take photo of the same thing. And every one will be very different the way they've approached it, the angle, the 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 cropping, etc. So yeah. even even subjects can be treated in so many different ways. Uh, again, there's no wrong. Sometimes photos become cliches, and you talk about cliches in the book. I, someone told me years ago, when you go on vacation, take the cliche photo first, get it out of the way, and then look for the interesting photos. Because you're going to want that photo of the two people holding up the Tower of Pisa, right? You're going to want to do that once. Right. <laughs> but that it's kind of like if you can just push that one aside and then have more time to do to look for something interesting. We shoot photos for so many different reasons. I have so many vacations that I have no actual documentation of because I was too worried about finding the, you know, <laughs> the fine art photos. <laughs> and it's so, yeah, it's it's not just about shooting the cliche. It's about documenting your life. You've got to take those shots and there's nothing wrong with that. I will argue that when you're taking those shots, you still have a chance to practice snapshots, as we as we call them, are still an opportunity to take a good photo uh, out to dinner with my friends. I'd like to get a shot of it. Don't just line him up against a wall executioner style. See if you can find something more interesting to do for that snapshot. It's a chance to practice and they'll appreciate getting a better photo. It's always great to go out with a bunch of friends and, and then have them hang out while you set up some lights and uh, <laughs> <laughs> art direct them. <laughs> they'll learn something from the experience. They get some practice also. You've got a chapter in the book called Take the Why Not Shot. And I find that interesting because this is something I do a lot. I, I live next to a farm in rural England and I walk around the farm and I just decide to take pictures of different things on the farm just because. And sometimes I'm very surprised at the result. I don't chimp. I never look at photos on my camera until I get home. I usually, and William Eggleston never took more than one photo of a subject. He wouldn't sit there and do two or three. He might go walk around a subject. And, and I kind of think like that a lot of times. I don't know when this came to me that you don't need to get everything perfect. Just take the photos. And if they're crap, you just delete them when you get home. And I find that interesting because you can, in, in those little geometric things or shadows and whatever, you can sometimes come across something really interesting kind of by accident. But what I feel is that when you do that, it's not entirely by accident. It's that your eye saw something and you couldn't quite feel it. And then when you see the final photo, you've actually learned something from that experience. Yeah. And I think that that's a good example of maybe your, so you learn in stages, you, you have breakthroughs and you plateau for a while. And by the end of the plateau, you're pretty bored. I wonder if sometimes those things that you're surprised by when you get home by show that you're maybe on the cusp of something. Some part of your psyche has understood that's a good photo over there and has and you've you've allowed yourself to take that photo, but you still are surprised by it when you get home because you have not yet maybe broken through to where understanding that's a good photo is more in the forefront of your of your photographic sense. You know, the big obstacle is not is not craft or learning your tool. The big obstacle is all the things that your brain throws in front of you to tell you that you're a bad photographer and that you're screwing up and that you're going to fail. And all of that is because, again, when you get home, you don't want to feel bad. So you're trying to control the future there, which is never a good idea. And I think one of the things that really gets in the way is we 
we get caught up in the idea that all of this is really precious that, oh my gosh, if I can get this photo, it's going to change the world or it's going to change me or it's going to make me feel better. And I don't want to take any bad photos and I don't, and, and I don't want to miss a great shot and I don't want to screw it up and it, just relax. This is again, stop, stop having good photos as your goal. Just have the process as your goal, have practicing as the goal, enjoy the process of being out shooting and seeing, and maybe being surprised when you get home. If you can take that preciousness away, you'll shoot more, you'll discover more things by accident, and you'll most, most importantly just have a better time. There are people who are in photography clubs, and they get together. They're generally older people rather than younger people. And I've never done this because I just don't like the idea. And they'll get together, and they'll have these little competitions of, like, shoot this, and they come back and they vote on them. And I kind of wonder, what's the point of that pressure? You're not taking photos to be liked, and we could talk about Instagram for, for things like that. You're taking photos because you're trying to express something. You're trying to interpret the world. And I find that if people focus on that, they end up doing those HDR photos from the, the photography magazines. Well, one example, and I cite this often, I, I just hate this photo of someone goes to Scotland. There's this beautiful castle on the other side of the lock, but they take the photo with a wide angle lens. So there's this rock in the front that takes up about a third of the frame. And then the castle's in the background. This like weird depth of field thing. All the photo magazines show this, and I don't see any aesthetic reason to do it. <laughs> Have you seen uh, Insta Repeat? No. It's an yes. Instagram. Yes, it's wonderful. I find it. It's fascinating. It's, oh, the one where people are all taking the same photo over and over. Well, it's yeah, it's, they do a grid of of similar yeah. ones. Yeah, they 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 poke around on instant Instagram to find that people have taken this same shot, which. Uh, a lot of that is the two people holding up the Tower of Pisa, but I know what yeah, you mean, yeah. yeah. But it's also, uh, I saw one the other day, the uh, uh, point of view shot of legs extending out the door of a tent. And so there was like a grid of nine of those. And and I think there's a lot to learn from watching those. First of all, it's what you already said, Kirk, about the leaning Tower of Pisa shot, that like, fine, take the shot. Plainly, that is a composition that resonates with everyone. If you if you come up with that, people are going to like it. They're going to like it so much that they're shooting it, uh, shooting on their own. The more you can learn about what an audience responds to, the better. And I think there's a lot you can learn from looking at Insta Repeat about, wow, this is, these are comp I mean, the first thing you're going to do is look at it and go, oh, my God, I've taken that shot. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have that experience, go, no, it shows that your brain is working like everyone else's does. That's a good thing. It, it would be worse if you think that this weird shot is what everyone's going to like. And you don't shoot for, for, to please other people, but you do want people to be able to read and understand your photographs. And so learning these kind of, I would almost call them, they're like archetypal compositional ideas. Learning those is not a, not a bad thing to do. To, to avoid them. There, there's one thing that always strikes me when I'm watching a film, and here's the shot. Glow angle camera on the sidewalk. Car pulls up, door opens, you see the feet come out. How many times have you seen this in movies and TV shows? It's just cliche. And yet people still continue doing this. Well, it, it, it's cliche, but it's also language because it's it's something that people like can relate to and can set up the scene in a short amount of time. Um, I mean, I would say probably most of the time it's not needed to replicate that exact shot, but it's also something that we don't have to puzzle. Oh, geez, what's happening? Where are they? What's this person doing? Because you know, okay, this is going to be a reveal, and so having having that that shared language now 
makes it work. And so then you can move on to something else, which I would think would be the case with a lot of these photos too, because you know, okay, yes, this is a landscape shot, but where am I going to put the person? Well, oh, look, there's my legs, and I'll just take a, <laughs> take a shot of that. Okay, maybe that's going a little bit too far, but it also doesn't discount the fact that maybe having my legs there shows that I had this amazing experience, and I want to remember the experience. Maybe this isn't something that I do anything with, but there's also that sense of the experience. And there's the familiarity that the audience appreciates. And I think that that's actually deeply rooted in the way that we have always told stories. Um, and this is something we've really lost because now we have ownership of stories, which means only certain people are allowed to tell certain stories, which basically mm -hmm. makes those stories serve no function in society at all. There's a historian here in the San Francisco Bay Area, a guy named Malcolm Margolin, who tells a lot of the Native American history in the area. And one time I heard him talking about, or maybe this is in one of his books, he was uh, a friend invited him to some event where coyote stories were going to be told. And so he goes to this event and they're sitting there. And after half an hour or so, he realizes I can't follow this story at all. And right about that time, his friend turns to him and says, I just realized you probably can't follow this story at all. And the reason was everyone who was in this location knew the story already. So the person telling the story was just telling the part that they liked with their style in the particular way that they like to tell it and embellish it and change it. And that those embellishments and changes were the things that were interesting to everybody. But the story was already known. So they didn't need to explain it or recap it or anything like that. And I think that if we think about how storytelling developed, this was probably a critical part is repetition was a big thing. Because we were telling these stories. Sure, because it was an oral tradition exactly. early on. So we, we, they had to repeat things in order to remember them. But they didn't have to repeat the whole thing after a while. No, they would re each, each person would learn a part of it, and they would share um, in the storytelling sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And we don't, we don't do that anymore that much, because you'll get sued if you tell. <laughs> if I sit down and... <laughs> Well, yes and, yes and no. Uh, it, the, the specific stories with specific characters, that's one thing. But, you know, look how many adaptations of Shakespeare's stories there are, right? You can take the same idea, the same type of characters and archetypes. You don't have to repeat exactly what it is. There is a lot of latitude. Yeah, but Shakespeare won't sue you. Marvel will. <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't go to see Marvel movies, but you could certainly write a story with similar types of characters and similar sure. types of situations, and that's not copyrighted. It, what's copyrighted is names and, and specific instances. But we're straying. You mentioned something a few minutes ago about reading photographs, and I think that's really important because it's too easy to just go to Instagram and scroll and scroll and scroll and you register a photograph for a second and then you move on. And going back to photo books... I find it incredibly relaxing to sit down with a photo book and just spend a minute looking at each photo. Together with a nice single malt whiskey, that helps. But there is, <laughs> there is a process there of looking at something, slowing down to look at a photograph, figuring out what makes it work, looking at the elements, figuring out the aspect ratio, the frame and all of that. And I think that's something anyone going back to looking at good photographs, that's what we need to do even for our own photographs. We need to read them. What is there in the photograph that we're trying to express or that we're trying to capture? I agree. And I think that there are two stages to that reading. There is the first looking at it as a regular viewer. Uh, what does this, what do I feel about this photograph? I, I find it fascinating sometimes when I'm looking through a book of photos, you turn the page and there are those photos that you just get right away. 
Uh, you don't even read them. They come to you fully formed, complete, uh, just a gestalt reaction that is, oh, this works. And you know it and it's satisfying. And then there are the ones that you maybe turn the page and you go, huh. But you look at it longer and you start seeing things and noticing things and you start reading it. So I think you spend time going through the book first, just letting yourself have the reaction, whatever it may be, that the photo, that the photographer is hoping you might have. Then you look at them again with the eye of a photographer and you start taking them apart and try to figure out how they work. And I, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about that is uh, you might be looking, I'm thinking right now of a particular Cartier-Bresson image of some guys in a rowboat and he was plainly shooting from another robot, rowboat. And it's, it's one of those just like perfect clockwork compositions that he did. But then when you stop and look at it, you realize, oh wait, he's shooting this from a boat on rough seas, he was going up and down like crazy, shooting with what, maybe 200 speed film. And wow, this is an incredibly technically difficult situation that he's in that I wouldn't have recognized as such. I wonder how he solved it. Well, I could imagine maybe he did this or that or the other. So this is one reason the studious study of photographs can be the equivalent of being out with your own cameras. You're gonna think through situations that you maybe have never been in on your own and maybe you never will be but if you are you will have already had some experience in that situation and so i think there's a lot you can learn you know especially when it comes to like lighting and things looking at reflections in people's eyeballs to figure out where the lights were set and then thinking about what does it mean if you have a light there oh look there's a corresponding shadow over here oh but it's not that dark oh that's because this light in this catch light represents a light over here that was plainly meant to weaken the you there's you can totally take apart lighting plots and figure out how they work. Except these days, there's so much done in Photoshop that you can look at a photo and you won't get that information. You need to go back to, to film to see how photos were actually made. A lot of times, yeah. I mean, it, you can, you can no. find it. I mean, yes and no. I think we can go both ways on that. Yeah, but a lot of things are so processed in Photoshop. You know, film film is is unforgiving, right? You get what you get, and there's some minor retouching. You can do a few things in a darkroom, but you can't do very much. But with Photoshop, you can add lighting from different areas, and you can tweak things, and you can airbrush things. That's true. All of those are are still decisions that were made to produce a photo. You can at least go, oh, look, there's a there's a light over here. Whether it was created digitally or photographically, the important thing is the photographer felt they needed a light over here. You need to ask yourself why. A, a lot of times when I'm looking, if I'm in a museum and I'm looking at paintings, I, I realize there's an implication in photography that's not there in painting, and it makes you read a painting very differently from a photograph. With a photograph, we assume that this moment happened. That tree in the background, the fact that its leaves are red instead of green, that wasn't a choice that the photographer made. That's just how the tree was at that time. That's very different from a painting where you look at it and you go, well, he chose to make those leaves red or she. Why? Does that have some allegorical purpose? Does that have some color theory purpose? And so on and so forth. And so with a painting, you're used to, hopefully, you're used to sitting there and going, everything here is intentional. I need to figure out why. That's not true with everything in a photograph, but it's true with a lot of things in, in a photograph. And you have to train yourself to slow down and, and look for those things, to look at a photo the way you would with a painting. The flip side of that is if you go to a museum and you're looking at paintings and you're finding yourself bored, maybe you're looking at them the way you look at photos, which is you're just assuming this was a moment in time. Oh yeah, I get it. I'll move on to the next one. No, this was constructed. Try to try to think about why it was constructed that way. I think David Hockney said that in a recent book of his that I read that a painting is a passage of time, whereas a photograph is uh, a slice of time. In a painting, you see that passage of time that took 
weeks or months for the painter to create. And in photography, we just assume, which is generally the case, that it's just an instant. Um, there are exceptions, time-lapse things and, you know, double exposures and all that. But we're primed to look at photographs as a moment that didn't last with no before and no afterwards. Paintings have a sort of fluidity in time. Yeah, and I think that we don't know it, but we we bring that expectation to photos when we look at them. And I feel like social media has made all this worse because now photography is completely disposable. The thing you see on Instagram, you, wow, I really like this. Well, never going to look at it again. Swipe. And you move on to the next one, as opposed to the old days when you had a catalog in your head of the photos that you loved, that you went back and revisited in a book or on a print or, or whatnot, where photography is really ephemeral now. It's it's that one one hundredth of a second you look at for a hundredth of a second and you leave. And that impacts the way that impacts you as a photographer. You need to change that habit if you want to improve. Even if the viewers are still discarding your photos as one after one viewing, that's fine. You need to be taking a deeper look into the world itself and the way that you construct it as a photo. On the other hand, some things don't change. Last year, I reread Susan Sontag's essays on photography, and one of them in, from the 70s, she was lamenting that there were too many photos and that people see photos all the time and too many people taking photos. I mean, obviously, the delivery is a little bit different now. They're instant and we have more of them everywhere. It's not like you go to someone's house and they set up the slide projector to show vacation photos. Um, but th we're always going to complain that there's too much stuff. There's too many books. There's too much music. There's too much of everything. So it's real. It's always a filtering thing. We have to filter out the dross, which is the 80%, and then the 20% left is what we need to pay attention to. And I think you also have to understand what you want from photography, and that's another reason to practice. Do you want to be able to shoot that landscape shot like you see the great landscape shooters shoot? Or do you want to shoot because when the light turns perfect at four o'clock, it just kind of makes you all achy inside because it's so spectacular and you don't know what you want from it. You just, you can't, you need to, you want to chew it up somehow. <laughs> you want to become one with it and you don't know how to do that. So you grab your camera and you go outside and you don't even know what you're looking for. You got to practice to find out what you're looking for. You got to practice to find out what it is that you want to do with that light. Are you, and hopefully you're not just looking to commoditize it somehow. You're looking for some kind of personal satisfaction from the feeling that it's evoking in you that you are trying to express photographically. I still haven't figured out how to do that. <laughs> and, and I think that it's, you know, Kirk, you saying, well, I'm, I spent a summer shooting flowers. That's great. You might just have to keep doing thing after thing after thing like that to continue to get what it is you want from the light that you're experiencing. And I think for most of us, uh, I read an interesting thing years ago about why do why do reviewers of media so often seem to be out of touch with popular tastes? Why do book reviewers love the weird esoteric new thing and not the thing that's actually selling? Well, if you're a book reviewer for a living, you read a lot of books. And so you're real tired of that thing that the casual reader who only reads a few books a year is reading. The thing that excites you is that weird esoteric thing because you've never seen that before or it's for whatever reason. And I think that that's something you're going to run into the longer you stick with any art form. The longer you shoot, the more you're going to get bored by those beautiful landscape shots or the decisive moment street shooting shot. The more you might get interested in, you know, wow, I was shooting that edge of my fingernail the other day and found that it was really a fascinating texture and line, and you come up with this weird stuff but it's not weird if you've really been exploring for a long time and so i think that's why you practice is you've got to find 
the direction that you need to go for yourself, not to look like you're shooting great photos, but to be shooting photos that you actually care about. Okay, Ben Wong, uh, your book is The Practicing Photographer. Thank you so much. We could talk for hours, but Jeff has to edit this episode, so we're going <laughs> to call it a day here. Thanks a lot, guys. This was great fun. One thing I want to mention before we leave about this book, um, first of all, where can we get it? You can get it from Amazon. You can also get it from completedigitalphotography.com. Link in the show notes. Um, and it is full of wonderful essays and no photos. Yes. Which uh, I think it was a very interesting choice. And I, w when I started looking through it, I knew that there were no photos, but you start getting into it and you don't really notice that this is a photo book without photos because you're, I mean, to sound completely cliche, like you're making the pictures in your mind. Anyway, but um, we, we highly recommend this book. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? I've got something that I actually own three of these. And I, I feel sort of silly because I don't need them. So I have an Apple Watch. I've had Apple Watches since the beginning. And one of the things that has always annoyed me is when you're charging the Apple Watch, you have to put it on the little puck that magnetically connects. And I swear, it's like USB cables. I never put it on the right side, right? Because I have one that's like... It, it's like white on one side and white on the other, and it, it drives me crazy. And so I discovered this thing. It's an $11, I think it's, originally I think it was probably just like 3D printed. It's this Spigen S350 stand designed for the Apple Watch charger. And there are all sorts of things that, that you can put your Apple Watch on to charge it. And what this is, it's just a little, it's like a little shelf that holds the watch sideways. So you can take advantage of the the mode that the Apple Watch has that sort of turns it into a, a night clock, really. But I'm able to just take my watch off and pop it into this this slot, and it just charges by itself. And I, I had one of these next to my bed. And then I realized, well, sometimes I need to charge my watch when I'm up in my office. And so I bought another one and then I bought another <laughs> one for my wife. It's odd that I have gained so much satisfaction out of this tiny little thing. But, um, you know, again, it, it was enough to buy multiple ones just because I'm not frustrated about charging my watch. It sounds overblown to even mention it. And yet I love this little thing. I'm looking at my Amazon order history. I bought one of those in September 2015. So that would have been just when the watch came out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I have one on the table next to my bed. In my office, I have one of the other charging things. And I just put some blue tack to stick it onto a, uh, a shelf where I have chargers. So I always get the right side. Oh, there you go. Um, I find that practical. So what do you have for a snapshot today? Um, I've got some movies. I bought a box set called Ingmar Bergman's Cinema. It's 39 of Bergman's films on 30 Blu-ray discs. It came mm. out in late 2018, and I just heard about it about a month ago. I don't know a lot of Bergman's films. I'd seen some of them, but I thought this is a good chance to see a lot more. It's not that expensive. It's 150 bucks. I think I paid 140 pounds. 
You either like Bergman or you don't. As they say here, it's Marmite. Marmite is this yeast-based spread that people put on <laughs> toast. And believe yeah. me, it's terrible. But it's either you like it or you don't. And I, I, I've probably seen about half a dozen of the films before, but it's really fascinating to look at them. And, you know, Ben said something in the show that you don't learn how to make a film from looking at good films, but I disagree because you look at the cinematography. I'm only at the, the early films so far. I started watching them last week. As you get later with Sven Nyquist doing the cinematography, there is a, a plastic beauty to the films that's extraordinary. So 39 Bergman films, that's a lot for a lot of people, but this is, you know, a nice set to have if you really are interested in film. It's about 74 and a half hours of film, including 30 hours of additional features. And I haven't watched any of the extra interviews or anything yet. And I know that as it goes on, there are more of those and a couple of making of documentaries and all. So link in the show notes, it's a Criterion Collection release. This Some of them are recent um, restorations. Some of the old ones are pretty grainy, but um, it's the biggest collection of Bergman films you can find. Wow. Some people, they binge all the Marvel movies in one go. I want to see you <laughs> do all the Bergman movies back to back for as long as you can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 